Once, golems were delicate and beautiful. Once, the very best sculptors probably made them to rival the most beautiful of statues. But long since then, the fumble-fingered many who could barely make a snake out of clay found that bashing the stuff into the shape of a big, hulking gingerbread man worked just as well. This foot was one of the early kind. It was made of a clay-like white china, with patterns of tiny raised markings in yellow, black and red. A little brass plate in front of it was engraved in Überwaltian, foot of Omnian Golem, middle period. Well, whoever made the cabinet comes from... Anyone looking at the labels sees it in their native tongue, said Ponder wearily. The, the markings apparently indicate that it did indeed come from the city of Um, according uh, to the late Professor Fleed. Um, said Moist. Um what? They weren't sure to call the place. Just Um, said Ponder. Very ancient. About 60,000 years, I believe, uh, back in the clay age. The first golem makers, said Adorabel. She unslung the bag and started to rummage in the straw. Moist tapped the foot. It seemed eggshell thin. Uh, it's some sort of ceramic, said Ponder. Uh, no one knows uh, how they made it. The Omnians even baked boats out of the stuff. Did they work? Up to a point, said Ponder. Anyway, the city was totally destroyed in the first war with the ice giants. There's nothing there now. Uh, we, we think that the foot was put in the cabinet a long time ago. Or will be dug up sometime in the future, perhaps, said Moist. That could very well be the case, said Ponder gravely. In which case, won't that be a bit of a problem? I mean, can it be in the ground and in the cabinet at the same time? That, Mr. Lipvig, is the wrong type of question? Yes, the box exists in ten or, or possibly eleven dimensions. Practically anything may be possible. Why only eleven dimensions? Uh, we don't know, said Ponder. It might be simply that more would be silly. Can you take the foot out, please, said Adorabel, who was now brushing wisps of straw off a long package. Ponder nodded, lifted out the relic with great care, and placed it gently on the bench behind them. What would have happened if you had dropped... Moist began. Wrong type of question, Mr. Lipvig. Adorabel put the bundle down beside the foot and unwrapped it with care. It contained a part of a golem's arm, two feet long. I knew it. The markings are the same, she said. And there's a lot more on my piece. Can you translate it? Me? No, said Ponder. Uh, the arts are, are not my field, he added, in a way that suggested his was a pretty superior field with much better flowers in it. Uh, you need uh, Professor Fleed. Uh, you mean the one who's dead, said Moist. He's... Uh, dead at the moment, but I'm sure that in the interests of discretion, uh, my colleague Dr. Hicks can arrange for the professor to talk to you uh, after lunch. When he'll be less dead, said Moist. Uh, when uh, Dr. Hicks has had lunch, said Ponder patiently. Professor Fleed will be pleased to uh, receive visitors, uh, uh, especially Miss Dearheart. Uh, he is the world expert on, on Omnian. Every word has hundreds of meanings, uh, I understand. Can I take the foot? said Adorabel. No, said Ponder, it's ours. That was the wrong type of answer, said Adorabel, picking up the foot. On behalf of the Golem Trust, I am acquiring this Golem. If you can prove ownership, we will pay you a fair price for it. Would that it were uh, that simple, said Ponder, politely taking it from her. But, uh, you see, if our curiosity is taken away from the uh, cabinet room for more than Fourteen hours and fourteen seconds, uh, the cabinet stops working. Last time it took us three months to uh, restart it. But you can drop in at any time to uh, check that we're not mistreating it. Moist laid a hand on Adorabel's arm to forestall an incident. She's very passionate about golems, he said. The trust digs them up all the time. That's uh, very commendable, said Stibbons. I'll talk to Dr. Hicks. He's the head of the Department of Post-Mortem Communications. Post-Mortem Commi... Moist began. Isn't that the same as necromant? I said the Department of Post-Mortem Communications, said Ponder very firmly. I suggest you come back at three o'clock. Did anything about that conversation strike you as normal, said Moist as they stepped out into the sunlight? Actually... I thought it went very well, said Adorabel. This wasn't how I imagined your homecoming, said Moist. Why the rush? Is there some problem? Look, 
We found four golems at the dig, said Adorabel. That's good, yes, said Moist. Yes. And you know how deep they were? I couldn't guess. Guess? I don't know, said Moist, bewildered at suddenly having to play What's My Depth. Two hundred feet down? That's more than half a mile underground. Impossible! That's deeper than coal. Keep it down, will you? Look, is there somewhere we can go and talk? How about the Royal Bank of Ankh-Morpork? There's a private dining room, and they'll let us eat there, will they? Oh, yes, the chairman is a great friend of mine, said Moist. He is, is he? He certainly is, said Moist. Why, only this morning he licked my face. Adorabel stopped and turned to stare at him. Really? she said. Then it's just as well I got back when I did. Chapter 7 The Joy of Collops Mr. Bent goes out to lunch. The Dark Fine Arts Amateur Thespians Avoidance of Embarrassment by The Pen of Doom Professor Fleed gets cosy. Lust comes in many varieties. A hero of banking. Cribbins's cup runneth over. The sun shone through the window of the bank's dining room onto a scene of perfect pleasure. You should sell tickets, said Adorabel dreamily, with her chin in her hands. People are depressed, would come here and go away cured. It's certainly hard to watch it happening and be sad, said Moist. It's the enthusiastic way he tries to turn his mouth inside out, said Adorabel. There was a gulp from Mr. Fusspot as the last of the sticky toffee pudding went down. He then turned the bowl over, hopefully, in case there was any more. There never had been, but Mr. Fusspot was not a dog to bow down to the laws of causality. So, said Adorabel, a mad old lady, all right, a very astute mad old lady, died and gave you her dog, which sort of wears this bank on its collar? And you've told everyone that gold is worth less than potatoes? And you broke a dastardly criminal out of your actual death row? He's in the cellar designing bank notes for you? You've upset the nastiest family in the city? People are queuing to join the bank because you make them laugh? What have I missed? I think my secretary is, uh, getting sweet on me. Well, I say, secretary, she's sort of assumed that she is. Some fiancés would have burst into tears or shouted. Adorabelle burst out laughing. And she's a golem, said Moist. The laughter stopped. That's not possible. They don't work that way. Anyway, why should a golem think he's female? It's never happened before. I bet there haven't been many emancipated golems before. Beside, why should he think he's male? And she bats her eyelashes at me. Well, that's what she thinks she's doing, I think. The countergirls are behind this. Look, I'm serious. Trouble is, so is she. I'll have a word with him. Or, as you say, her. Good. The other thing is, there's this man. Amesbury poked his head around the door. He was in love. Would you like some more minced collops, miss? He said, waggling his eyebrows, as if to indicate that the joy of minced collops were a secret known only to a few. Fortunately, this is the case. You've still got more? said Adorabelle, looking down at her plate. Not even Mr. Fusspot could have cleaned it better, and she'd already cleaned it twice. Do you know what they are? said Moist, who'd settled again for an omelette made by Peggy. Do you? No, nor do I. But my granny used to make them, and they are one of my happiest childhood memories, thank you very much. Don't spoil it. Adorabelle beamed at the delighted chef. Yes, please, Amesbury. Just a little more, then. And could I just say that the flavour could really be brought out by just a touch of gar... You are not eating, Mr. Bent, said Cosmo. Perhaps a little of this pheasant. The chief cashier looked around nervously, uneasy in this grand house full of art and servants. Mm, yeah, I, I, I want to make it clear that my loyalty to the bank is beyond question, Mr. Bent. Of course, Cosmo pushed a silver tray toward him. Do eat something, now you have come all this way. But you are hardly eating at all, Mr. Cosmo, just bread and water. I find it helps me think. Now what was it you wanted to— They all like him, Mr. Cosmo. He just talks to people and, and they like him. And he's really set on dismissing gold. Think of it, sir. Where would we find true worth? He says it's all about the city, but that puts us at the mercy of politicians. It's trickery again. 
A little brandy would do you good, I think, said Cosmo. And what you say is solid gold truth, but where is our way forward? Bent hesitated. He did not like the lavish family. They crawled over the bank like ivy, but at least they didn't try to change things, and at least they believed in gold. And they weren't silly. Malvolio Bent had a definition of silly that most people would have considered a touch on the broad side. Laughter was silly. Theatricals, poetry, and music were silly. Clothes that weren't grey, black, or at least of undyed cloth were silly. Pictures of things that weren't real were silly. Pictures of things that were real were unnecessary. The ground state of being was silliness, which had to be overcome with every mortal fibre. Missionaries from these stricter religions would have found in Malvolio Bent an ideal convert, except that religion was extremely silly. Numbers were not silly. Numbers held everything together, and gold was not silly. The lavishes believed in counting and in gold. Mr. Lipvig treated numbers as if they were something to play with, and he said gold was just lead on holiday. That was more than silly. It was inappropriate behaviour, a scourge that he had torn from his breast after years of struggle. The man had to go. Bent had worked his way up the echelons of the bank over many years, fighting every natural disadvantage, and it hadn't been to see this person make a mockery of it all. No. A man came to the bank again today, he said. He was very odd, and he seemed to know Mr. Lipvig, but he called him Albert Spangler, talked as if he knew him from long ago, and I think Mr. Lipvig was upset at that. Name of Cribbins, or so he called himself. Very old clothes, very dusty. He made out he was a holy man, but I don't think so. And that was what was odd, was it? No, Mr. Cosmo. Just call me Cosmo, Malcolm. We surely needn't stand on ceremony. Yes, said Malvolio Bent. Well, no, it wasn't that. It was his teeth. They were those dine-chewers, and they moved and, and rattled when he spoke, causing him to slurp. Ah, the old type with the springs, said Cosmo. Very good. And Lipvig was annoyed. Oh, yes. And the strange thing was, he said he didn't know the man, but he called him by name. Cosmo smiled. Yes, that is strange. And the man left? Well, yes, sir, Mr. Cosmo, said Bent. And, and then I came here. You have done very well, Matthew. Should the man come in again, could you please follow him and try to find out where he is staying? If I can, sir, Mr. Cosmo. Good man. Cosmo helped Bent out of his chair, shook his hand, waltzed him to the door, opened the door, and ushered him out all in one smooth, balletic movement. Hurry back, Mr. Bent. The bank needs you, he said, closing the door. He's a strange creature, don't you think, Drumnot? I wish he'd stopped doing that, heretofore thought. Does he think he's veterinary? What do they call those fishes that swim alongside sharks, making themselves useful so they don't get eaten? That's me. That's what I'm doing. Just hanging on because it's much safer than letting go. How would Vetinari find a badly-dressed man new to the city with ill-fitting teeth, Drumnot? said Cosmo. Fifty dollars a month and all found, thought heretofore, snapping out of a brief marine nightmare. Never forget it, and in another few days you're free. He makes much use of the Beggar's Guild, sir, he said. Ah, of course. See to it. There will be expenses, sir. Yes, Drumnot, I'm conscious of the fact. There are always expenses. And the other matter? Soon, sir, soon. This is not a job for Cranberry, sir. I'm having to bribe at the highest level, heretofore coughed. Silence is expensive, sir. Moist escorted Adorabelle back to the university in silence. But the important thing was that nothing was broken and no one was killed. Then, as if reaching a conclusion after much careful thought, Adorabelle said, I worked in a bank for a while, you know, and hardly anyone got stabbed. I'm sorry, I forgot to warn you, and I did push you out of the way in time. I must admit that the way you threw me to the floor quite turned my head. Look, I'm sorry, okay, and so is Amesbury. And now, will you tell me what all this is about? You found four golems, right? Have you brought them back? No. The tunnel collapsed before we got down that far. 
I told you they were half a mile down under millions of tons of sand and mud. For what it's worth, we think there was a natural ice dam up in the mountains which burst and flooded half the continent. The stories about Um say it was destroyed in a flood, so that fits. The golems were washed away with the rubble, which ended up against some chalk cliffs by the sea. How do you find out they were down there? It's, well, it's nowhere. The usual way. One of our golems heard one singing. Imagine that. It's been underground for sixty thousand years. In the night under the world, in the pressure of the depth, in the crushing of the dark, a golem sang. There were no words. The song was older than words. It was older than tongues. It was the call of the common clay, and it carried for miles. It travelled along fault lines, made crystals sing in harmony in dark, unmeasured caverns, followed rivers that never saw the sun, and out of the ground and up the legs of a golem from the Golem Trust, who was pulling a wagon loaded with coal along the region's one road. When he arrived in Ankh-Morpork, he told the Trust. That was what the Trust did. It found golems. Cities, kingdoms, countries came and went, but the golems that priest had baked from clay and filled with holy fire tended to go on for ever. When they had no more orders, no more water to fetch or wood to hew, perhaps because the land was now on the ocean floor or the city was inconveniently under fifty feet of volcanic ash, they did nothing but wait for the next order. They were, after all, property. They obeyed whatever instructions were written on the little scroll in their head. Sooner or later, rock erodes. Sooner or later, a new city would arise. One day there would be orders. Golems had no concept of freedom. They knew they were artifacts. Some even still bore on their clay the finger marks of the long-dead priests. Golems were made to be owned. There had always been a few in Ankh-Morpork, running errands, doing chores, pumping water deep underground, unseen and silent and not getting in anyone's way. Then, one day, someone freed a golem by inserting in its head the receipt for the money he'd paid for it, and then he told it that it owned itself. A golem could not be freed by orders, or a war, or a whim, but it could be freed by freehold. When you have been a possession, then you really understand what freedom means in all its magnificent terror. Dorful, the first freed golem, had a plan. He worked hard around the clock he had no time for, and bought another golem. The two golems worked hard and bought a third golem, and now there was the Golem Trust, which bought golems, found golems entombed underground or in the depths of the sea, and helped golems by themselves. In the booming city, golems were worth their weight in gold. They would accept small wages, but they earned them for twenty-four hours a day. It was still a bargain, stronger than trolls, more reliable than oxen, and more indefatigable and intelligent than both of them. A golem could power every machine in a workshop. This didn't make them popular. There was always a reason to dislike a golem. They didn't drink, eat, gamble, swear, or smile they worked. If a fire broke out, they hurried to it, en masse, and put it out, and then walked back to what they had been doing. No one knew why a creature that had been baked into life had the urge to do this, but all it won them was a kind of awkward resentment. You couldn't be grateful to an unmoving face with glowing eyes. "'How many are down there?' said Moist. "'I told you four. Moist felt relieved. "'Well, that's good. Well done. Can we have a proper celebratory meal tonight, of something the animal wasn't so attached to, and then who knows? There may be a snag, said Adorabelle slowly. No, really? Oh, please, Adorabelle sighed. Look, the Omnians were the first golem builders, do you understand? Golem legend says that the Omnians invented golems. It's easy to believe, too. Some priest baking a votive offering says the right words, and the clay sits up. It was their only invention. They didn't need any more. Golems built their city. Golems tilled their fields. They invented the wheel, but as a children's toy. They didn't need wheels, you see. You don't need weapons, either, when you've got golems instead of city walls. You don't even need shovels. You're not going to tell me they built fifty-foot-high killer golems, are you? Only a man would think of that. It's our job, said Moist. If you don't think of fifty-foot-high killer golems first, someone else will. Well, there's no evidence of them, 
said Adora Bell briskly. The Omnians never even worked iron. They did work bronze, though. And gold. There was something about the way that gold was left hanging there that Moist didn't like. Gold, he said. Omnian is a very complex language, said Adora Bell quickly. None of the trust golems know much about it, so we can't be certain. Gold, said Moist, his voice leaden. So, when the digging team found caves down there, we came up with a plan. The tunnel was getting unstable anyway, so they closed it off. We said it had collapsed, and by now the team will have brought the golems out under the sea and be bringing them underwater, all the way into the city, said Adora Bell. Moist pointed at the golem's arm in its bag. That one isn't gold, he said, hopefully. We found a lot of golem remains about halfway down, said Adora Bell with a sigh. The others are deeper. Um, perhaps because they're heavier. Gold's twice the weight of lead, said Moist gloomily. The buried golem is singing in Omnion, which is the most complex language ever, said Adora Bell. I can't be certain of our translation, so I thought let's start by getting them into Ankh-Mor Park, where they will be safe. Moist took a deep breath. Do you know how much trouble you can get into by breaking a contract with a dwarf. Oh, come on! I'm not starting a war! No, you're starting a legal action. And with the dwarfs, that's even worse. You told me the contract said you couldn't take precious metals out of the land. Yes, but these are golems. They're alive. Look, you've taken, may have taken, all right, may have taken, good grief, Tons of gold out of dwarf land. Golem trust land. All right. But there was a covenant which you broke when you took, didn't take. It walked off by itself, said Adora Bell calmly. For heaven's sake, only a woman could think like this. You think because you believe there's a perfectly good justification for your actions, the legal issues don't matter. And here am I, this close to persuading people here that a dollar doesn't have to be round and shiny, and I'm finding that at any minute four big shiny beaming golems are going to stroll into town waving and glittering at everybody. There's no need to get hysterical, said Adora Bell. Yes, there is. What there isn't a need for is staying calm. Yes, but that's when you come alive, right? That's when your brain works best. You always find a way, right? and there was nothing you could do about a woman like that. She just turned herself into a hammer, and you ran right into her. Fortunately. They'd reached the entrance to the university. Above them loomed the forbidding statue of Alberto Malik, the founder. It had a chamber pot on its head. This had inconvenienced the pigeon, which, by family tradition, spent most of its time perched on Alberto's head, and now wore on its own head a miniature version of the same pottery receptacle. Must be rag week again, thought Moist. Students, eh? Love them or hate them, you're not allowed to hit them with a shovel. Look, golems or not, let's have dinner tonight, just you and me up in the suite. Amesbury would love it. He doesn't often get a chance to cook for humans, and it'd make him feel better. He'll do anything you want, I'm sure. Adora Bell gave him a lopsided look. I thought you'd suggest that, so I ordered Sheep's Head. He was overjoyed. Sheep's Head, said Moist gloomily. You know I hate food that stares back. I won't even look a sardine in the face. He promised to blindfold it. Oh, good. My granny made a wonderful sheep's head mould, said Adora Bell. That's why you use pig's trotters to thicken the broth, so that when it gets cold you... You know, sometimes there's such a thing as too much information, said Moist. This evening, then. Now let's go and see your dead wizard. You should enjoy it. There's bound to be skulls. There were skulls. There were black drapes. There were complex symbols drawn on the floor. There were spirals of incense from black thuribles. And in the middle of all this, the head of post-mortem communications, in a fearsome mask, was fiddling with a candle. He stopped when he heard them come in, and straightened up hurriedly. "'Oh, you're early,' he said, his voice somewhat muffled by the fangs. "'Sorry, uh, it's the candles. They should be cheap tallow for the proper black smoke.' But wouldn't you know it, they've given me beeswax. I told them just dribbling is no good to me. Acrid smoke is what we want, or what they want, anyway. Sorry, John Hicks, head of department. Ponder has told me all about you. He took off the mask and extended a hand. 
The man looked as though he tried, like any self-respecting necromancer, to grow a proper goatee beard, but owing to some basic lack of malevolence, it had turned out a bit sheepish. After a few seconds, Hicks realised why they were staring, and pulled off the fake rubber hand with the black fingernails. "'I thought necromancy was banned,' said Moist. "'Oh, we don't do necromancy here,' said Hicks. "'What made you think that?' Moist looked around at the furnishings, shrugged, and said, "'Well, I suppose it first crossed my mind when I saw the way the paint was flaking off the door, and you can still just see a crude skull, and the letters necr—' "'Ancient history, ancient history,' said Hicks quickly. "'We are the Department of Post-Mortem Communications. Necromancy, on the other hand, is a very bad form of magic done by evil wizards.' "'And since you are not evil wizards, what you are doing can't be called necromancy.' "'Exactly!' "'And er, what defines an evil wizard?' said a doorbell. "'Well, doing necromancy would definitely be there right on top of the list. "'Could you just remind us what you are going to do?' "'We're going to talk to the late Professor Fleed,' said Hicks. "'Who is dead, yes?' "'Very much so. Extremely dead.' Isn't that just a tiny bit like necromancy? Ah, but, you see, for necromancy you require skulls and bones and a general necropolitan feel, said Dr. Hicks. He looked at their expressions. Ah, I see where you're going wrong, he said with a little laugh that cracked a bit around the edges. Don't be deceived by appearances. I don't need all this. Professor Fleed does. He's a bit of a traditionalist and wouldn't get out of his urn for anything less than the full right of souls, complete with the dread mask of summoning. He twanged a fang. And that's the dread mask of summoning, is it? said Moist. The wizard hesitated for a moment before saying, Of course. Only it looks just like the dread sorcerer mask they sell in Boffo's shop in Tenth Egg Street, said Moist. Excellent value at five dollars, I thought. I, er... "'Think you must be mistaken,' said Hicks. "'I don't think so,' said Moist. "'You left the label on.' "'Where? Where?' "'The I'm not a necromancer at all snatched up the mask "'and turned it over in his hands, looking for—' "'He saw Moist's grin and rolled his eyes. "'All right, yes,' he muttered. "'We lost the real one. "'Everything gets lost round here. "'You just wouldn't believe it. "'They're not clearing up the spells properly. "'Was there a huge squid in the corridor?' "'Not this afternoon,' said Adorabel. "'Yes, what's the reason for the squid?' "'Oh, let me tell you about the squid,' said Hicks. "'Yes.' "'You don't want to know about the squid?' "'We don't. "'Believe me. "'Are you sure it wasn't there?' "'It's the sort of thing you notice,' said Adorabel. "'With any luck, that one's worn off, then,' said Hicks, relaxing. "'It really is getting impossible. "'Last week, everything in my filing cabinet filed itself under W. "'No one seems to know why.' "'And you were going to tell us about the skulls?' said Adorabel. All fake, said Hicks. Excuse me. The voice was dry and crackly and came from the shadows in the far corner. Ah, apart from Charlie, of course, Hicks added hurriedly. He's been here forever. I'm the backbone of the department, said the voice a shade proudly. Look, shall we get started, said Hicks, rummaging in a black velvet sack. There are some hooded black robes on the hook behind the door. Uh, they're just for show, of course, but nec post-mortem communications is all about theatre, really. Most of the people we uh, communicate with are wizards, and frankly, they don't like change. We're not going to do anything ghoulish, are we? said Adorabel, looking at a robe doubtfully. Apart from talk to someone who's been dead for three hundred years, said Moist. He was not naturally at ease in the presence of skulls. Humans have been genetically programmed not to be ever since monkey times because, A, whatever turned that skull into a skull might still be around and you should head for a tree now, and B, skulls look like they're having a laugh at one's expense. Don't worry about that, said Hicks, taking a small ornamental jar out of the black bag and polishing it on his sleeve. Professor Fleed willed his soul to the university. He's a bit crabby, I have to say, but he can be cooperative if we put on a decent show. He stood back. Let's see. Grizzly candles, circle of Namareth, glass of silent time, the mask, of course, uh, the curtains of... Uh, curtains, and... Here he put a small box down beside the bottle. The vital ingredients. Sorry, do you mean all those expensive-sounding other things aren't vital? said Moist. They're more like scenery, 
said Hicks, adjusting the hood. I mean, we could all sit around reading the script out loud, but without the costumes and scenery, who'd want to turn up? Are you interested in the theatre at all? he added in a hopeful voice. I go when I can, said Moist guardedly, because he recognised the hope in the man's voice. You didn't by any chance see Tis Pity She's an Instructor in Unarmed Combat at the Little Theatre recently? It was put on by the Dolly Sisters players? Uh, no, I, I'm afraid not. I played Sir Andrew Fartswell, said Dr. Hicks, in case Moist was due a sudden attack of recollection. Oh, that was you, was it? said Moist, who'd met actors before. Everyone at work was talking about it. I'm okay as long as he doesn't ask which night they talked about, he thought. There's always one night in every play when something hilariously dreadful happens. But he was lucky. An experienced actor knows when not to push his luck. Instead, Hicks said, Do you know ancient languages? I can do basic droning, said Moist. I can speak formal golem. Is this ancient enough for you? said Adora Bell, and made Moist's spine tingle. The private language of the golems was usually hell on the human tongue, but it sounded unbearably sexy when Adora Bell uttered it. It was like silver in the air. What was that? said Hicks. The common language of golems for the last twenty thousand years, said Adora Bell. Really? Most, uh, moving. Uh, we'll begin. In the counting house, no one dared to look up as the desk of the chief cashier rumbled around on its turntable like some ancient tumbrel. Papers flew under Malvolio Bent's hands while his brain drowned in poisons and his feet treadled continually to release the dark energies choking his soul. He didn't calculate, not as other men saw it. Calculation was for people who couldn't see the answer turning gently in their head. To see was to know. It always had been. The mound of accumulated paperwork dwindled as the fury of his thinking racked him. There were new accounts being opened all the time, and why? Was it because of trust, probity, an urge toward thrift? Was it because of anything that could be called worth? No. It was because of Lipvig. People whom Mr. Bent had never seen before and hoped never to see again were pouring into the bank, their money in boxes, their money in piggy banks, and quite often their money in socks. Sometimes they were actually wearing the socks. And they were doing this because of words. The bank's coffers were filling up because the wretched Mr. Lipvig made people laugh and made people hope. People liked him. No one had ever liked Mr. Bent, as far as he was aware. Oh, there had been a mother's love and a father's arms, the one chilly, the other too late. But where had they got him? In the end, he'd been left alone. So he'd run away and found the grey caravan and entered a new life based on numbers and on worth and solid respect. And he'd worked his way up, and yes, he was a man of worth, and yes, he had respect. Yes, respect. Even Mr. Cosmo respected him. And now here was Lipvig. And who was he? No one seemed to know except for the suspicious man with the unstable teeth. One day there was no Lipvig, next day he was the postmaster general, and now he was in the bank, a man whose worth was in his mouth, and who showed no respect for anyone, and he made people laugh, and the bank filled up with money. And did the lavishes lavish anything on you? said a familiar little voice in his head. It was a hated little part of himself that he had beaten and starved and punched back into its wardrobe for years. It wasn't the voice of his conscience. He was the voice of his conscience. It was the voice of the... the mask. No, snapped Bent. Some of the nearest clerks looked up at the unaccustomed noise and then hurriedly lowered their heads for fear of catching his eye. Bent stared fixedly at the sheet in front of him, watching the numbers roll past. Rely on the numbers. They didn't let you down. Cosmo doesn't respect you, you fool. You fool! You have run their bank for them and cleaned up after them. You made, they spent, and they laugh at you. You know they do. Silly Mr. Bent with his funny walk. Silly, silly, silly. Get away from me, get away, he whispered. The people like him because he likes them. No one likes Mr. Bent. But I have worth, I have value. Mr. Bent pulled another worksheet toward himself and sought solace in its columns. But he was pursued. Where was your worth and value when you made the numbers dance, Mr. Bent? The innocent numbers? You made them dance and somersault and cartwheel when you cracked your whip, and they danced into the wrong places, didn't they? Because Sir Joshua demanded his price. Where did the gold dance off to, Mr. Bent? Smoke and mirrors. No! In the counting-house, 
All the pens ceased moving for a few seconds before scribbling again with frantic activity. Eyes watering with shame and rage, Mr. Bent tried to unscrew the top from his patent fountain pen. In the muted silence of the banking hall, the sound of the green pen being deployed had the same effect as the sound of the axeman sharpening his blade. Every clerk bent low to his desk. Mr. Bent had found a mistake. All anyone could do was keep their eyes on the paper in front of them and hope against hope that it was not theirs. Someone, and please gods it would not be them, would have to go and stand in front of the high desk. They knew that Mr. Bent did not like mistakes. Mr. Bent believed that mistakes were the result of a deformity of the soul. At the sound of the pen of doom, one of the senior clerks hurried to Mr. Bent's side. Those workers who risked being turned to water by the ferocity of Mr. Bent's stare essayed a quick glance and saw her being shown the offending document. There was a distant tut-tut sound. Her tread, as she came down the steps and crossed the floor, echoed in deadly, praying silence. She did not know, as she scurried, button boots flashing, to the desk of one of the youngest and newest clerks, that she was about to meet a young man who was destined to go down in history as one of the great heroes of banking. The dark organ music filled the Department of Post-Mortem Communications. Moist assumed it was all part of the ambiance, although the mood would have been more precisely obtained if the tune it was playing did not appear to be cantata and fugue for someone who has trouble with the pedals. As the last note died, after a long illness, Dr. Hicks spun around on the stool and raised the mask. Sorry about that. I have two left feet sometimes. Could you both just chant a bit while I do the mystic waving, please? Don't worry about words. Anything seems to work if it sounds sepulchral enough. As he walked around the circle, chanting variants on oo and ra, Moist wondered how many bankers raised the dead during the course of an afternoon. Probably not a high number. He shouldn't be doing this, surely. He should be out there making money. Al's clamp must have finished the design by now. He could be holding his first note in his hands by tomorrow. And then there was damn Cribbins, who could be talking to anyone. True, the man had a rap sheet as long as a roller towel, but the city worked by alliances, and if he met up with the lavishes, then Moist's life would unravel all the way back to the gallows. "'In my day we at least hired a decent mask,' growled an elderly voice. "'I say, is that a woman over there?' A figure had appeared in the circle without any bother or fuss apart from the grumbling. It was, in every respect, the picture of a wizard, robed, pointy-hatted, bearded, and elderly, with the addition of a silvery monochrome effect overall and some slight transparency. "'Ah, Professor Fleed,' said Hicks, "'it's kind of you to join us.' "'You know, you brought me here, and it's not as if I had anything else to do,' said Fleed. He turned back to Adora Bell, and his voice became pure syrup. "'What is your name, my dear?' "'Adora Bell, dear heart.' The warning tone of voice was lost on Fleed. "'How delightful!' he said, giving her a gummy smile. Regrettably, this made little strings of saliva vibrate in his mouth like the web of a very old spider. "'And would you believe me if I told you that you bear a striking resemblance to my beloved concubine Fenty, who died more than three hundred years ago? The likeness is astounding.' "'I'd say that was a pick-up line,' said Adorabelle. "'Oh, dear!' "'Such cynicism,' sighed the late Fleed, turning to the head of post-mortem communications. "'Apart from this young lady's wonderful chanting, it was frankly a mess, Hicks,' he said sharply. He tried to pat Adorabelle's hand, but his fingers passed right through. "'I'm sorry, Professor. Uh, we just don't get the funding these days,' said Hicks. "'I know, I know. It was ever thus, Doctor, even in my day. If you needed a corpse, you had to go out and find your own. If you couldn't find one, you jolly well had to make one.' It's all so nice now, so damned correct. So a fresh egg technically does the trick. Well, whatever happened to style? They tell me they've made an engine that can think now, but of course the fine arts are always the last in the queue. So I'm brought to this. One barely competent post-mortem communicator and two people from central groaning. Necromancy is a fine art, said Moist. None finer, young man. Get things just a tiny bit wrong, and the spirits of the vengeful dead may enter your head via your ears and blow your brains out down your nose. The eyes of Moist and Adorabelle focused on Dr. Hicks, like those of an archer on his target. He waved his hands frantically in mouth, not very often. 
What is a pretty young woman like you doing here, hmm? said Fleed, trying to grab Adorabelle's hand again. I'm trying to translate a phrase from Omnian, she said, giving him a wooden smile and absent-mindedly wiping her hand on her dress. Are women allowed to do that sort of thing these days? What fun! One of my greatest regrets, you know, is that when I was in possession of a body, I didn't let it spend enough time in the company of young ladies. Moist looked around to see if there was any kind of emergency lever. There had to be something, if only in the event of nasal brain explosion. He sidled up to Hicks. It's going to go really bad in a moment, he hissed. It's all right. I can banish him to the undead zone in a moment, Hicks whispered. That won't be far enough if she loses her temper. I once saw her put a stiletto heel right through a man's foot while she was smoking a cigarette. She hasn't had a cigarette for more than fifteen minutes, so there's no telling what she'll do. But Adorabelle had pulled the golem's arm out of her bag, and the late Professor Fleed's eyes twinkled with something more compelling than romance. Lust comes in many varieties. He picked up the arm. That was the second surprising thing, and then Moist realised that the arm was still there by Fleed's feet, and what he was lifting was a pearly, tenuous ghost. Ah! Part of an Omnian golem, he said. Bad condition. Immensely rare. Probably dug up on the site of Um, yes? Possibly, said Adorabelle. Hmm. Possibly, eh? said Fleed, turning the spectral arm around. Look at the wafer thinness. Light as a feather, but strong as steel while the fires burned within. There's been nothing like them since. I might know where such fires still burn, said Adorabelle. After sixty thousand years, I think not, madam. I think otherwise. She could say things in that tone of voice and turn heads. She projected absolute certainty. Moist had worked hard for years to get a voice like that. Are you saying an Omnian golem has survived? Yes, four of them, I think, said Adorabelle. Can they sing? At least one can. I'd give anything to see one before I die, said Fleed. Um, Moist began. Figure of speech, figure of speech, said Fleed, waving a hand irritably. I think that could be arranged, said Adorabelle. In the meantime, we've transcribed their song into Bodley's phonetic runes. She dipped into her bag and produced a small scroll. Fleed reached out, and once again an iridescent ghost of the scroll was now in his hands. It appears to be gibberish, he said, glancing at it. Although I have to say that Omnion always does at first glance. I shall need some time to work it out. Omnion is entirely a contextual language. Have you seen these golems? No, our tunnel collapsed. We can't even talk to the golems who are digging any more. Song doesn't travel well under salt water. But we think they're unusual golems. Golden, probably, said Fleed, the words leaving a thoughtful silence in their wake. Then Adorabelle said, Oh, Moist shut his eyes. On the inside of the lids, the gold reserves of Ankh-Morpork walked up and down, gleaming. Anyone who researches um finds the golden golem legend, said Fleed. Sixty thousand years ago, some witch doctor sitting by a fire made a clay figure and worked out how to make it live, and that was the only invention they ever needed, do you understand? They even had horse golems, do you know that? No one has ever been able to create one since. Yet the Omnians never worked iron. They never invented a spade or the wheel. Golems herded their animals and spun their cloth. The Omnians did make their own jewellery, though, which largely consisted of scenes of human sacrifice badly executed in every sense of the word. They were incredibly inventive in that area. A theocracy, of course, he added with a shrug. I don't know what it is about stepped pyramids that brings out the worst in a god. Anyway, yes, they did work gold. They dressed their priests in it. Quite possibly they made a few golems out of it. Or equally, the golden golems was a metaphor referring to the value of golems to the onions. When people wish to express the concept of worth, gold is always the word of choice. Isn't it just, murmured Moist, or it is simply a legend without foundation. Exploration of the site has never found anything except a few fragments of broken golems, said Fleed, sitting back and making himself comfortable on empty air. He winked at Adorabel. Perhaps you looked elsewhere. One story tells us that upon the death of all the humans, the golems walked into the sea? The question mark hung in the air like the hook it was. What an interesting story, said Adorabel, poker-faced. Fleed smiled. 
I will find the sense of this message. Of course you will come and see me again tomorrow. You make eternity bearable. Moist didn't like the sound of that, whatever it was. It didn't help that Adora Bell was smiling. Fleed added, Why do you care about golems? They have no passionate parts. Have you, sir? said Adora Bell, laughing. No, but I have an excellent memory. Moist frowned. He liked it better when she was giving the old devil the cold shoulder. Can we go now? he said. Probationary trainee junior clerk Hammersmith Coote watched Miss Drapes looming ever closer, with slightly less apprehension than his older colleagues did, and they knew this was because the poor kid had not been there long enough to know the meaning of what was about to happen. The senior clerk put the paper on his desk with some force. The total had been ringed around in green ink, which was still wet. Mr. Bent, she said, with a tincture of satisfaction, says you must do this again, properly. And because Hammersmith was a well-brought-up young man, and because this was only his first week in the bank, he said, Yes, Miss Drapes, took the paper neatly, and set to work. There were many different stories told about what happened next. In years to come, clerks measured their banking experience in how close they were when the thing happened. There were disagreements on what was actually said. Certainly there was no violence, no matter what some of the stories implied. But it was a day that brought the world, or at least that part of it that included the counting house, to its knees. Everyone agreed that Hammersmith spent some time working on the percentages. They say he produced a notebook, a personal notebook, which was an offence in itself, and did some work in it. Then, after, some say fifteen minutes, some say nearly half an hour, he walked back to the desk of Miss Drapes and declared, I'm sorry, Miss Drapes, but I can't find where the mistake is. I have checked my workings and believe my total is correct. His voice was not loud, but the room went silent. In fact, it was more than silent. The sheer straining of hundreds of ears meant spiders spinning cobwebs near the ceiling wobbled in the oral suction. He was sent back to his desk to do it again and don't waste people's time. And after a further ten minutes, some say fifteen, Miss Drapes went to his desk and looked over his shoulder. Most people agree that after half a minute or so, she picked up the paper, pulled a pencil from the tight bun on the back of her head, ordered the young man out of his seat, sat down, and spent some time staring at the numbers. She got up. She went to the desk of another senior clerk. Together they pored over the piece of paper. A third clerk was summoned. He copied out the offending columns, worked on them for a while, and looked up, his face grey. No one needed to say it aloud. By now all work had stopped, but Mr. Bent, up on the high stool, was still engrossed in the numbers before him, and, significantly, he was muttering under his breath. People sensed it in the air. Mr. Bent had made a mistake. The most senior clerks conferred hastily in a corner. There was no higher authority that they could appeal to. Mr. Bent was the higher authority, second only to the inexorable Lord of Mathematics. In the end, it was left to the luckless Miss Drapes, who so recently had been the agent of Mr. Bent's displeasure, to write on the document, I'm sorry, Mr. Bent, I believe the young man is right. She slipped this at the bottom of a number of working sheets that she was delivering to the in-tray, dropped it in as the tray rumbled past, and then the sound of her little boots echoed as she rushed, weeping the length of the hall to the ladies' restroom, where she had hysterics. The remaining members of the staff looked around warily, like ancient monsters who can see a second sun getting bigger in the sky but have absolutely no idea what they should do about it. Mr. Bent was a fast man with an in-tray, and by the look of it there were about two minutes or less before he was confronted with the message. Suddenly, and all at once, they fled for the exits. "'And how was that for you?' said Moist, stepping out into the sunlight. "'Do I detect a note of peevishness?' said Adorabelle. Well, my plans for today did not include dropping in to chat with a three-hundred-year-old lech. I think you mean lich. And anyway, he was a ghost, not a corpse. He was leching. All in his mind, said Adorabelle. You're mine too. Normally you go crazy if people try to patronise you. True, 
but most people aren't able to translate a language so old that even golems can hardly understand a tenth of it. Get a talent like that, and it could be you getting the girls when you're three centuries dead. You were just flirting to get what you wanted. A doorbell stopped dead in the middle of the square to confront him. And? You flirt with people all the time? You flirt with the whole world? That's what makes you interesting. Because you're more like a musician than a thief. You want to play the world, especially the fiddly bits. And now I'm going home for a bath. I got off the coach this morning, remember? This morning, said Moist, I found that one of my staff had swapped the mind of another of my staff with that of a turnip. Was that good? said Adorabel. I'm not sure. In fact, I'd better go and check. Look, we've both had a busy day. I'll send a cab at half-past seven, all right? Cribbins was enjoying himself. He'd never been much for reading up until now. Oh, he could read, and write, too, in a nice, cursive script that people thought was quite distinguished. And he'd always liked the Times for its clear, readable font, and had, with the aid of some scissors and a pot of paste, often accepted its assistance in producing those missives that attract attention not by fine writing, but by having the messages set out in cut-out words and letters, and even whole phrases, if you were lucky. Reading for pleasure had passed him by, however. But he was reading now, oh yes, and it was extremely pleasurable, goodness, yes. It was amazing what you could find if you knew what you were looking for. And now all his hogs' watches were about to come at once. "'A cup of tea, Reverend,' said a voice by his side. It was the plump lady in charge of the Times's back issues department, who had taken to him as soon as he doffed his hat to her. She had the slightly wistful, slightly hungry look that so many women of a certain age wore when they decided to trust in gods because of the absolute impossibility of continuing to trust in men. "'Why, thank you, sister,' he said, beaming. "'And is it not written, the eleemosynary cup is more worthy than the throne hen?' Then he noticed the discreet little silver ladle pinned to her bosom, and that her earrings were two tiny spatulas. The holy symbols of a noyer, yes. He'd just been reading about a noyer in the religious pages. All the rage these days, thanks to the help of young Spangler. Started out way down the ladder as the goddess of things that get stuck in drawers, but the talk in the religious pages was that she was being tipped for goddess of lost causes, a very profitable area very profitable indeed for a man with a flexible approach, but, and he sighed inwardly, it was not such a good idea to do business when the god in question was active, in case Anoya got angry and found a new use for a spatula. Besides, he'd soon be able to put all that behind him. What a clever lad young Spangler had turned out to be, smarmy little devil. This wasn't going to be over quick, oh no, this was going to be a pension for life, and it'd be a long, long life, or else. "'Is there anything more I can get you, Reverend?' said the woman anxiously. "'My cup runneth over, sister,' said Cribbins. The woman's anxious expression intensified. "'Oh, I'm sorry, I hope it hasn't gone on the—' Cribbins carefully put his hand over the cup. "'I meant that I am more than satisfied,' he said. And he was. It was a bloody miracle, that's what it was. If Om was going to hand them out like this, he might even start believing in him. And it got better the more you thought about it, Cribbins told himself as the woman hurried away. Had the kid done it? There must have been cronies. The hangman, for one. A couple of jailers. Reflectively, he removed his false teeth with a twang, swilled them gently in the tea, patted them dry with his handkerchief, and wrestled them back into his mouth a few seconds before footsteps told him the woman was returning. She was positively vibrating with genteel courage. Uh, "'Excuse me, Reverend, but can I ask a favour? she said, going pink. Cribbins turned his back, and against a chorus of snaps and twings, dragged the wretched dentures around the right way. Damned things! Why'd he ever bother to leave them out of the old man's mouth he'd never know? Oh, "'I do beg your pardon, sister, a little dental mishap there.' he murmured, turning back and dabbing at his mouth. "'Pray continue.' "'It's funny you should say that, Reverend,' said the woman, her eyes bright with nervousness, "'because I belong to a small group of ladies who run, well, uh, a God of the Month club. Uh, that is, we pick a God and believe in him, 
or her, obviously, or it, although we draw the line at the ones with teeth and too many legs, uh, and the foreign ones, of course, and then we pray to them for a month, and then we sit down and discuss it. Well, there's so many, aren't there? Thousands. We've not really considered Om, though, but if you would care to give us a little talk next Tuesday, I'm sure we'll be happy to give him a jolly good try. Springs pinged as Cribbins gave her a huge smile. What is your name, sister? he asked. Berenice, she said. Berenice uh, uh, Hauser. Ah, no longer using the bastard's name, very wise, thought Cribbins. What a wonderful idea, Berenice, he said. I would consider it a pleasure. She beamed. There wouldn't be any biscuits, would there, Berenice? Cribbins added. Miss Hauser blushed. Oh, I believe I have some chocolate one somewhere, she volunteered, as if letting him in on a big secret. May annoyer rattle your drawers, sister, said Cribbins to her retreating back. Wonderful, he thought, as she bustled off, blushing and happy. He tucked his notebook into his jacket and sat back and listened to the ticking of the clock on the wall and the gentle snores of the beggars, who were the normal habitués of this office on a hot afternoon. All was peaceful, settled, organised, just like life ought to be. It was going to be the gravy boat for him from this day forward, if he was very, very careful. Moist ran down the length of the vaults toward the brilliant light at the far end. There was a tableau of peacefulness. Hubert was standing in front of the glooper, occasionally tapping a pipe. Igor was blowing some curious glass creation over his little forge, and Mr. Clamp, formerly known as Owlswick Jenkins, was sitting at his desk with a faraway look on his face. Moist sensed the doom ahead. Something was wrong. It might not be even a particular thing, it was just a sheer platonic wrongness, and he did not like Mr. Clamp's expression at all. Nevertheless, the human brain, which survives by hoping from one second to another, will always endeavour to put off the moment of truth. Moist approached the desk, rubbing his hands together. "'How's it going, then, Owl—I mean, Mr. Clamp?' he said. "'Finished it yet, have we?' "'Oh, yes,' said Clamp, a strange, mirthless little smile on his face. "'Here it is.' On the desk in front of him was the other side of the first proper dollar bill ever to be designed. Moist had seen pictures quite like it, but they had been when he was four years old, in nursery school. The face of what was presumably meant to be Lord Vetinari had two dots for eyes and a broad grin. The panorama of the vibrant city of Ankh-Morpork appeared to consist of a lot of square houses with a window, all square, in each corner and a door in the middle. "'I think it's one of the best things I've ever done,' said Clamp. Moist patted him convivially on the shoulder and then marched toward Igor, who was already looking defensive. "'What have you done to that man?' said Moist. "'I have made him a well-balanced personality, no longer beset with anxieties, fears, and the demons of paranoia,' said Igor. Moist glanced at Igor's workbench, a brave thing to do by any standards. On it was a jar with something indistinct floating in it. Moist looked closer. Another minor act of heroism when you were in an Igor-rich environment. It was not a happy turnip. It was blotchy. It was bouncing, gently from one side of the jar to another, occasionally turning over. I see, said Moist. But it would appear, regrettably, that by giving our friend the relaxed and hopeful attitude toward life of, not to put too fine a point on it, a turnip, you have also given him the artistic abilities of, and I have no hesitation in using the term again, a turnip. But he is much happier in himself, said Igor. Granted, but how much of himself is, and I really don't wish to keep repeating myself here, of a root vegetable-like nature? Igor considered this for some time. As a medical man, sir, he said, I must consider what is best for the patient. At the moment, he is happy and content, and hath no cares in the world. Why would he give up all this for a mere facility with a pencil? 
Moist was aware of an insistent bonk, bonk. It was the turnip banging itself against the side of the jar. That is an interesting and philosophical point, he said, once again looking at Clamp's happy yet somewhat unfocused expression. But it seems to me that all those nasty little details were what made him, well, him. The frantic banging of the vegetable grew louder. Igor and Moist stared from the jar to the eerily smiling man. Igor, I'm not sure you know what makes people tick. Igor gave an avuncular little chuckle. Oh, believe me, sir. Igor, said Moist. Yes, master, said Igor gloomily. Go and fetch the damn wires again, will you? Yes, master. Moist got back upstairs again to find himself in the middle of a panic. A tearful Miss Drapes spotted him and click-clicked over at speed. It's Mr. Benser. He just rushed out, yelling. We can't find him anywhere. Why are you looking? said Moist, and then realised he said it aloud. I meant, uh, what is the reason for you looking? The story unfolded. As Miss Drapes talked, Moist got the impression that all the other listeners were getting the point, and he wasn't. So, okay, he made a mistake, he said. No harm done, is there? It's all been sorted out, right? A bit embarrassing, I dare say. But, he reminded himself, an error is worse than a sin, isn't it? But that's just plain daft, his sensible self pointed out. He could have said something like, You see, even I can make a mistake through a moment's inattention. We must be forever vigilant. Or he could have said, I did this on purpose to test you. Even school teachers know that one. I can think of half a dozen ways to wriggle out of something like that. But then I'm a wriggler. I don't think he's ever wriggled in his life. I hope he hasn't done something silly, said Miss Drapes, fishing a crumpled handkerchief out of a sleeve. Something silly thought Moist. That's the phrase people used when they were thinking about someone jumping into the river, or taking the entire contents of the medicine box in one go. Silly things like that. I've never met a less silly man, he said. Well, uh, we've always wondered about him, to be honest, said a clerk. I mean, he's in at dawn, and one of the cleaners told me he's often in here late at night. What, 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 that hurt! Miss Drapes, who had nudged him hard, now whispered urgently in his ear. The man deflated and looked awkwardly at Moist. "'Sorry, sir, I, I spoke out of turn,' he mumbled. "'Mr. Bent is a good man, Mr. Litwig,' said Miss Drapes. "'He drives himself hard.' "'Drives all of you hard, it seems to me,' said Moist. This attempt at solidarity with the labouring masses didn't seem to hit the mark. "'If you can't stand the eat, get off the pot, that's what I say,' said a senior clerk, and there was a general murmur of agreement. Um, I think you get out of the kitchen, said Moist. Get off the pot is the alternative when half the chief cashiers in the plains have worked in this room, said Miss Drapes, and quite a few managers now, and Miss Lee, who's deputy manager of Apsley's commercial bank in Stowlet, she got the job because of the letter Mr. Bent wrote. Bent trained, you see. That counts for a lot. If you've got a reference from Mr. Bent, you can walk into any bank and get a job with a snap of your fingers. And if you stay, the pay here is better than anywhere, a clerk put in. He told the board if they want the best, they'd have to pay for it. Oh, he's demanding, said another clerk, but I hear they're all working for a human resources manager at Pipeworth's bank now, and if it comes to that, I'll take Mr. Bent any day of the week. At least he thinks I'm a person. I was hearing where she was timing how long people spent in the privy. They call it time and motion study, said Moist. Look, I expect Mr. Bent just wants to be alone for a while. Who was he yelling at? The lad who made a mistake? Or didn't make it, I mean. That was young Hammersmith, said Miss Drapes. We sent him home because he was in a bit of a state. And no, he wasn't really shouting at him. He wasn't really shouting at anybody. He was... She paused, searching for a word. Jibrin, said the clerk who had spoken out of turn, giving the turn another twist. And you don't all have to look at me like that. You all heard him, and he looked as though he'd seen a ghost. Clerks were wandering back into the counting-house in ones and twos. They'd searched everywhere, was the general agreement, and there was a strong support for the theory that he'd gone out through the mint, it being rather busy in there with all the work still going on. Moist doubted it. The bank was old, and old buildings have all sorts of crannies, and Mr. Bent had been here for... How long has he been here? he wondered aloud. 
The general consensus was, since the mind of man can remember, but Miss Drapes, who seemed for some reason to have made herself well informed on the subject of Malvolio Bent, volunteered that it was thirty-nine years, and he got a job when he was thirteen by sitting on the steps all night until the chairman came to work and impressing him with his command of numbers. He went from messenger boy to chief cashier in twenty years. Speedy, said Moist. Never had a day off for illness either, Miss Drapes concluded. Well, perhaps he's entitled to some now, said Moist. Do you know where he lives, Miss Drapes? Mrs. Cake's boarding house. Really, that's a bit... Moist stopped and chose from a number of options. Low rent, isn't it? He says that as a bachelor it meets his needs, said Miss Drapes, and avoided Moist's gaze. Moist could feel the day slipping away from him, but they were all staring at him. There was only one thing he could say if he was to maintain his image. Then, I think I ought to see if he's gone there, said Moist. Their faces broke into smiles of relief. He added, but I think that one of you should come with me. After all, you know him. It looks as though I don't, he thought. I'll fetch my coat, said Miss Drapes. The only reason that her words came out at the speed of sound was that she couldn't make them go any faster.